Hey everyone, in this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, we're going to talk about war and sport. War versus sport. War or sport. War and slash or sport. Any more? That's it. Okay. Uh, I, I ran out. I think I ran out. I was gonna say just war, just sport. Just war. War. What is it good for? I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> um yeah, we thought we'd chat about how firearms history has developed sort of or firearms have developed for a multitude of reasons. Some of them have developed primarily for sporting reasons, or some parts of firearms technology have been driven by uh, warfare and military conflict. Uh, and there's actually quite a bit of crossover between the two, and that's sort of ebbed and flowed throughout firearms history. And there's a lot of interesting things to talk about, including things that we don't know anything about, like biathlon. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and it's an interesting and very topical conversation since there's a lot of debate in the media and by politicians about military style firearms and whether or not civilians should have access to military firearms or not, even though they don't really because of the 1986 Hughes Amendment. But I mean, I guess they could have like a Beretta handgun. Well, and there's a, I mean, we think of... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> Sorry, Danny, that was just... But it's true, I mean, it's something that people talk about, you know, should people... Even my doctor the other day was like, I just don't understand why people, like civilians, need weapons of war. And I was like, well, actually, if we don't need weapons of war um, because they're not as good as the technology the civilian market has historically. Well, and that's a, we tend to think of like this modern distinction of like what is a military firearm, and we go right to the selector switch on whether that rifle can fire full auto or just full auto or just semi auto. Yeah, that's such an like, indicator. But you know, at the same time too, there's other guns that they use. Right. There's other guns that are used by the military. There's other guns that have relevancy, and there's like the the line was way different in the past. And um, in one sense, it was, you know, what civilian guns can we bring into the military at times? You know, it's, you know, now, nowadays the debate is framed as what military guns are making it into the civilian world. But in the past, at several points, has been what civilian technology. And I think there's what civilian shooting styles are making it to the military and specifically i'm thinking of stuff like the american long rifle right like that's a civilian gun that the military then found useful for a bit and like for i'm making faces at you i'm sorry what i'm making faces at you i'm done i'm i'm struggling to to follow your train i'll get there oh you're still so, talking okay <laughs> you go <laughs> so hear me out on this in the american revolution the military made use of you know civilian firearms you know one example being like the american long rifle commonly available to civilians not really used by the military but then they used that civilian access to bring those riflemen into the continental army to to help uh to help fight the british a modern example that i think of is like modern shooting sports and the way that they have influenced you know, current military, you know, how, how the military teaches people to shoot and how modern shooting sports have influenced that. So I think there's, you know, it's, it's not always one direction or the other, it's sort of this give and take between the two. 
Um, and sometimes it's the technology, sometimes it's the, you know, specific things and specific ways we might shoot, but there's definitely a big crossover throughout uh, firearms history between the two. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting that you made the distinction of the civilians had long rifles and then they applied them to the battlefield, albeit not as necessarily as successfully as people think they did, or not as not as successful, but like as widespread, you know, right. as people think it was in comparison to the number of muskets being used. And I always approach it from the opposite sides, which really shows the yin and yang and that it's all so interconnected, which is that when you look at early firearms technology, when I'm saying early firearms technology, I'm really meaning like the first many centuries um, of firearms, you know, history where, you know, the better, more advanced things like the long rifle, you know, do end up being a part of the civilian sphere. Yes, they, uh, but the, that sometimes uh, like the wheel lock, they're developed for specifically warfare, but then ultimately, you know, aren't necessarily the best type of firearm to be used on the battlefield. You know, the wheel locks developed around 1509. It's meant to improve horseback warfare um, because the match lock has this slow burning rope that hangs out and, you know, you probably don't want to spook a horse with rope that's on fire. And so they developed this, um, you know, basically a mechanized system with a wheel so that you don't have to have burning rope. And it's brilliant and it is used on the battlefield, but it's expensive and it's not cost effective um, and it's not really easy to fix on the battlefield. So, you know, what the colonists, they go, you know what? Okay, cool. Like this is nice and all, and it's super, you know, advanced, but like, we'll stick with our match locks for the most part, you know, because it's something that they can, you know, use easily, make easily and cheaply. And so a lot of times, especially when you're looking at early European history, um, the, the better stuff ends up on the civilian market because technology, when, when there's a competition and a drive for technology, that technology tends to um, improve quickly and so fast that it outpaces tactics and governments and militaries they're dealing with big quantities of people and like the standardization of how they're fighting these battles and so sometimes the tactics you know aren't up to snuff with the technology that's there so even though they might have access access to better technology they choose to go with the proven functional piece that everybody can wield. And so if you had the money, the better guns belong to civilians because, um, you know, you could have flintlock firearms in the 1700s, you could, or flintlock, sorry, magazine-fed firearms, gas-sealed guns, you know, breech-loading guns. And you see that they pop up periodically throughout history. There's breech-loaders during the revolution, but, you know, they're, they're more of like a novelty to come and help for a specific purpose, like the long rifle had a specific purpose, than um, wide-scale adoption. So when people say we don't need weapons of war today, it always is interesting to me because historically speaking, we've always had the better stuff and so it's kind of a moot argument at that point and our stuff as you mentioned the modern shooting sports today is so good and so refined for the individual's needs that people are taking modern sporting rifles you know the competitive guns onto the battlefield um, in some instances because they are so advanced because those people are trying to push those technologies to the limits for speed accuracy precision all of that stuff well and you hit upon like i think the key point here is that like is that cost factor, you know, if you're a government making a decision about what to send your troops, you know, we'll just use the British for an example. If you're King George III and you have to send a bunch of British regiments over to the colonies, you can either arm them with all brown best muskets or maybe 
somebody's gotten enough influence to convince you to send them over with a bunch of Ferguson rifles. And that decision, you know, in the one sense, it's like, well, we, you know, in an ideal situation, they would have given them all Ferguson's, but that's not really, that's not really like the cost benefit analysis because those things are really expensive to make. They require for the day specialized training. Um, and it's much, much easier uh, to say, the brown best does most of what we need it to do yeah it'll shoot a little slower but you know that's fine we're just sending everybody with these so it, there's this real balance that this government has to find whereas a private individual doesn't necessarily have to, to have to make He's that limited analysis. by imagination and pocketbook. right they're limited you know? by the pocketbook and um yeah a lot of private people were willing to make to, to buy into a new technology a lot sooner than a government is willing to do so. And if you think about it in like a modern context, like what would you, like if you're just going to the range, like just not even a military situation, just going to the range, like which would you rather have? Like an M9 that has been in the army inventory for like 30 years and is beat up and shot out or like a brand new one that you can buy in the gun store. Like, I, I mean, it, it's this idea like the military civilians can go by let me start this over is the idea that we've gotten such into thinking of like military firearms the definition is the rate of fire we don't think about like the actual quality of the item itself like do i want that lowest contract m4 or lowest bidder contract m4 or do i want to go like buy a highly customized ar-15 for three gun or whatever and which one is like going to be a in pure performance metrics, which one's going to shoot better? Like I, I know where I'd probably put my money if I was betting, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought, but was thinking about, you know, that cost effective nature of the, when you mentioned the M4, the M16 and the AR platforms, which is, you know, part of the problem nowadays is, is the general overall appearance of the AR-15 and the M-16s, you know, the black guns is something that makes people also, you know, uneasy. And it's, you know, it goes back down to the cost effectiveness of it as well, which is that, you know, the, the, the reason it's black is because of the, you know, heating process of the different materials. And so the military's guns are black and a lot of ours are because it's less expensive, but, you know, the military is not going to spend the extra money to make it pink or you know less scary looking but people don't realize that that's why it is the way that it is you know and that it's going to cost more money to you know to change that appearance when it doesn't really matter to the function yeah it's yeah like i said it's just this weird thing that we've got caught up on one specific thing whereas that's not really the historically relevant piece and in other terms civilian firearms i would say still outclass military guns other than like purely oh. automatic rate of fire in many ways, what's available to civilians can outclass the military. Well, yes, in general. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, some, 
No, never mind. I was going to say there is, but that's more of an individually made civilian gun because there are, you know, niche guns that go overseas, but those right. are more for, you know, snipers or special units and that kind of thing. And then they have them made for them. And so yeah, it's more civilian yeah. than, than an actual military issue. Well, and the thing is, is that historically speaking, and you mentioned this and touched on this, um, you know, you said, would you rather buy, you know, an M9 that's been beat to crap or, you know, a new gun in the gun store. But at the same time, historically speaking, every time war at wars, and you know the 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 surplus of the military product tends to go out onto the civilian market for way cheap for people who are maybe who want to collect it but then also might not be in a demographic that can afford everything um so you see that after the civil war you see that after you know pretty much every war the distributors and, and nowadays it's the same thing i mean people are still buying m1 garands they're buying 1911s through the civilian marksmanship program yeah and that's a that's almost a I mean, I guess it's a perfect example, but I was I was about to say it's like a really different sort of situation. But in, I'm, the more I think about it, the more it isn't in that, you know, people then had a choice. They could buy that brand new, perfect condition, like new in the box gun at their gun shop, or they could buy one that works pretty well for a lot cheaper just because the government was selling it off as surplus. And that's been the case. That's been sort of an available option for civilian consumers for the last 170 years 160 yeah. something like that well and historically speaking to your point about the civilian market having better stuff is you know we've seen and we've talked about on this podcast you know every time you know there's a war a brewing you know all this the government wants to test out all these firearms and then when the war is not a brewing they, they abandon the projects you know they don't necessarily you know continue that development so what continues that development which is the drive of a private consumer market and um you know when you think about like the fact that um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Danny, in this, but that when Fairchild had Armalite, I mean, they were they always wanted the government contract, but they were gonna they were gonna sell it on the civilian market to try to get attention to their product. But their product was so different, so new that like it got swallowed up really before that you know came into play. Yeah. You know, because they knew the civilian market is where you can get noticed by the military um, if you've got this new cool you know. I'm not going to say that word because it would probably be a bad word, but, you know, this new cool piece of technology. And so, um, you know, when you constrain the civilian market, you constrain ultimately what the military is going to also be able to have in the future. Because if nobody, if you're not being driven by the private consumer wanting the next greatest, latest thing, um, and they're not allowed to have that anymore, then the civilian market's not going to want to, you know, the civilian market's not going to, you know, have the ability to, to, you know, influence it. So therefore, you know, the military is going to go back to what they've done forever, which is like, we're fine. And then we'll go into the next war with rolling blocks, you know, <laughs> like, like they didn't roll more on, you know, and they were like, this, this is fine. We're fine. It's fine. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it has this interplay um, that is just, it's so ingrained and it, it like uh, there's so many facets I almost can't even like wrap my brain around them. But the but we did we probably should switch gears a little bit to talk about um, the fact that the shooting sports, not that guns technology in and of themselves, but the sports also interplay with war. Right, and I was actually going to say like I was going to suggest because you touched on this a little bit ago, and I was going to bring it back up is the idea like so the idea that the american long rifle was very influential in the american revolution certainly there were moments of influence but it's not a predominant firearm there's only a minority of soldiers and there's that actually carried them 
but it starts to build this mythology almost of like these long range shots outclassing, you know, these American woodsmen outclassing, you know, those Europeans that just can't learn how to fight in the woods. And that, that mythology shows up later on too, I think in is really prevalent throughout kind of the American military into the 20th century, like this myth of like a rifleman that's going to be making these long range shots. And you see that in training in um, doctrine, you see it, especially after everybody's really disappointed about how badly troops in the civil war shot their guns. Like they're just like, wow, we are really bad yeah. shots. Um, and so they try to instill this sort of ethos that we're going to be like outranging, outshooting our enemy. And um, there's also sort of a concurrent side where the shooting sports focused on those things develop alongside this. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like Schutzen and the Creedmoor matches and all that stuff where like this emphasis on high precision, long range shooting in the late 19th century and early 20th century ends up being really influential in the U.S. Army specifically. Well, and it's not intrinsic, though, to America because England does the same thing with their soldiers after their war and they found their National Rifle Association, you know, to try to help improve marksmanship of their soldiers when they, you know, at a time when they go back to war. Same with the United States, same with Scotland, I think. You know, it's this idea to improve marksmanship and then it takes on a life of its own as a sport, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, yeah, it, it could probably influence if we went back to a war, the ability because if more people are do it using the shooting sports and obviously more people that are going to fight on the battlefield will also maybe be more proficient with a firearm, but it takes on a life of its own. And you see that really through, you know, everything. I mean, it even predates firearms. I mean, look at, um, you know, festivals that before firearms technology was around, I mean, they were doing target shooting with crossbows and longbows, you know, at festivals, which were also, you know, arms of war. And so it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and, and if you look at most of the shooting sports in the Olympics, I'm pretty sure, I mean, they had a, a practical application to them when they started and then they become their own specialized sport in and of itself. And you teased it earlier with the biathlon, um, which is the fact that, you know, the biathlon was originally created for like Alpine troops um, shooting centerfire rifles. And nowadays, you know, the biathlon is, you know, the same thing in concept, skiing and shooting, but with 22 calibers that almost look space agey to try to help with the balancing out of it. And so now that's not necessarily as practical as a function on the battlefield, but it started off that way. And now it's its own genre entirely. I would like to see, because you know, thinking of like when biathlon emerged for troops, if I could make up an Olympic event, I think there should be like a long distance cycling and shooting thing because that was a big deal at the turn of the 20th century. Like everybody's like, oh, we're going to ride bikes into battle. Like this is going to be the latest, greatest thing. And everybody did it for a little while and then they gave up on it when, you know, they started to motorize. But I think they should bring that one in. I don't know what to call it, <laughs> but that's my idea for FN made bikes. Yeah. Supposedly, I mean, there's rumors of a Winchester bike around somewhere too, but I don't that's believe it. That's a motorcycle and that's not true. Um, it's a, never mind. Yeah, so. That's a sensitive thing. <laughs> but yeah, there's like, there's this general trend of how everybody wants to improve distance shooting that is, that we talked about. But there's also, yeah, there's like specific examples where this one specific sport was made for the really 
specific reason of like some of our troops are going to be on skis and need to shoot and then that becomes like a hugely popular sport and is now in the olympics for a century or more um albeit in a slightly different and the form technology changes subsequently what's that that's a, that's the circumstance where you know the technology changes as a result of the sport mm. not the other way around right. which you see you know all the times where the sport develops from the piece of advanced technology this is an opposite kind of world um except for shoots and fest i feel like shoots and fest never had a military purpose and was strictly so that they could drink beer and shoot guns not in that order yeah that was probably a little bit of a stretch to, for me to like mention it as i was talking about things but i was thinking about like this really you know there's like a marksmanship craze in like the late 19th century right like everybody's out there yeah. like trying to hit targets offhand at 200 yards and then it becomes like international news because of the creedmoor matches that's what i was thinking of yeah. but yeah it's not no, really. no. sorry i was thinking less about creedmoor matches and more about like the earliest like the 1600s <laughs> shoots and fests and i'm like yeah that's pretty early you know maybe that was just more like, oh, hey, this is fun. And we already have these things because we like to go to war all the time. So, hey. I was, yeah, <laughs> I, that makes sense. We were thinking about two different shoots and fests, but I was thinking about it in the specific context of when shoots and fests <laughs> came to America after the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about like kings and queens being like, well, the peoples, they already have them, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, so we might as well let them have some fun <laughs> uh, before they die at like, 15 from a horrible pox <laughs> so one thing we also haven't talked about yet is how like the military then also engages with the civilian shooting world um you know at the governor's match the a couple i think this year both the army and the marine corps shooting teams were here shooting you know civilian three gun uh and they've been doing that for quite a long time now i don't know how long they've been shooting three gun but the army marksmanship unit has been shooting in um in the civilian world for you know decades and decades at this point um so i think that's a yeah, really good example of how this crosses back over yet again yeah and how that is like a direct application of improving marksmanship for your soldiers right, right. you know uh, having this you know having them compete in the civilian market but they compete in the civilian market because it's so competitive you know um not every soldier knows how you know every soldier knows how to use a gun but not every soldier is you know a marksman in terms of like competition shooting and like i remember i had to teach my ex-boyfriend how to shoot because um i had to teach him how to shoot handgun because he didn't learn that in basic training you know that wasn't like a part of it so it, it, it is kind of interesting oh I was just thinking about that because I was thinking about how handguns were given to officers and stuff like back in the day. So how little has changed. <laughs> um. <laughs> Ashley's weird flashbacks. Um, it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Um, but you know, it's 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 all very like you know you you think war and sport like oh those are two separate entities but they really do play off of one another. Um, you know, war divides and sport unites. Yeah, um, I think is what I tried to put on the what I tried to put on a text panel, and I was told no. Well, I think that's. I mean, or is it still on that text panel? Did no, I, I don't think it is. Thing. I'd have to go look, but I think that's a good point. Is like we like to think of them as these very distinct entities, and really, the old museum tried to keep them distinct because there was like a sporting arms timeline and a military history timeline. But which was so confusing. But you can't, and and uh, redundant. Yeah, but you can't. I mean, that's what we decided. Is like the technology on these two timelines is the same, and it's just it's too redundant. They're developed sort of intertwines, 
And so you have to tell a holistic story and they, they cross over. I think the if we can make a point for this episode is that they cross over way more than the simple, does it have a select, a selector on the gun? Um, so here's a weird question, Mr. Michael. Ooh, formal. Are guns only designed to kill? No. I agree. But why? Uh, I mean, just thinking of like what we're talking about now, there are guns strictly designed and made for competition. Um, you know, the the Fortner bolt actions for biathlon, those guns are made to hit a target in a race. Like, that is what they're made to do. Um, and you can say some of the technology is also used in guns that are made to um, you could probably make that argument that th that technology coexists in guns that are made to kill, but those guns, you know, those are made for that. To use an older example, the shoots and fest rifles, those guns were made mm -hmm. to shoot a target at 200 yards offhand. Like that was what they were made to do. And often for the individual person too. Yes. Awesome. Often, often oh, customized to them. There are guns that I think that are made that end up doing both or could be doing both, you know, that American long rifle, I'd say, you know, that was often made for use on the frontier for survival. So that's not necessarily made. Um, that one's sort of made almost for all purposes, right? But yeah, I always call the long rifle a utilitarian yes, piece. They are very utilitarian. You, you can use them for defense, you can use them for hunting, you can use them for war, and you can use them for sport. Um, you know, and I think that that's, you know, as technology changes too. You know, and you don't have just individual craftsmen making you a really fancy piece just for you, you know, and you've got mass manufacture. That also, you know, the increase of different calibers, the, you know, the change of different calibers, the increase of different trigger weights, you know, as the technology came along, you know, now you didn't have a utilitarian piece necessarily, or really most people never, um, you now have, this is my three gun gun, and this is my uh, biathlon gun, and this is my, uh, bull, you know, bullseye gun, and then this is my carry gun, and this is my open carry gun, and this is my, you know, home defense gun. Like, you know, like, because there are so many options nowadays, where back in the revolution, somebody could probably just afford one because it was one piece and they weren't going to go and have one craftsman make them 10 different guns. So it all kind of had to serve one purpose. Um, nowadays, the, the people have, if they have got the financial capability, they've got the luxury to buy things for specific purposes. I mean, yeah, you could have a, you could have a gun that is functionally identical. You, you have two guns that are functionally identical. One made purely for competition and one made to for self-defense or home defense or something like that um functionally to, those two ars could be the same thing but one that has been modified and built from the ground up for competition is going to look quite a bit different um mm -hmm. so that's its own interesting question in my mind yeah so is there anything else that we need to talk about that covers military and civilian <laughs> firearms ownership? I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but we kind of covered most of the big ones. Like right now, you know, in this podcast, we've covered some of the big concepts of the interchangeability and of the fact that they are, yes, they are two separate things nowadays. Um, and historically speaking, civilians have always had better like better, more advanced, more precise technology for what they need. Um, and that the commercial market is a great driver for what ultimately becomes the military market. So really what we're saying is that even today, yeah, here's where we'll go with this. 
Would you say that even today, <laughs> civilian guns have an advantage over the military? In terms of, we're not talking yeah. about like driving around in tanks. We're talking about like small, in terms of small arms. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the use of automatic and burst, you know, has its own specific need, but it's, you know, things are more accurate in semi-auto anyways. So yeah, I think they still are um, for most respects. Next question. If not all respects. Are we forgetting any obscure sports that have a military connection? Of course. I, I'm also thinking, apparently, like, I'm thinking of, like, racing-type sports. But in my mind right now is this picture from World War One when, like, a women's reserve police unit was pictured with a Lewis gun on a motorcycle sidecar. And I'm not sure how you could adapt that to sport, but that seems like it would be a fun sport. That would be a fun sport. But I don't know. Is it just racing uh you know because what, what targets are you you know hitting because it's not gonna be accuracy that's for sure i think it's like you do a lap and then you dump a mag from the drum and just keep going that's my vision for this new sport i'm inventing yes i i dig it but we can't afford those guns because of the hughes amendment this episode is sponsored by the hughes amendment of 1980s <laughs> that could cause some controversy <laughs> Well, it's true, though. I mean, yeah, we can't afford like the sport because it. they banned machine guns after 1986. So, you know, there's a finite number of machine guns in this country that you can buy, and they're very expensive. And really, that's when this debate kind of started. Like, what is the difference? Like, before that, it's just, it, it, it's not that strong of a debate. And if anything, it's encouraged that there's a lot of crossover because the powers that be kind of wanted a, like, as you mentioned, they wanted the civilian population to be familiar with firearms in case they needed a big mobilization. Nowadays, we don't really that's have that discussion as much. Yeah, we don't think about that. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. <laughs> Done. We solved all the world's problems today on History Unloaded. Tune in next week.